This is an interview with Logan Kilpatrick. Logan is an experienced developer with a master's at Harvard and now doing a PhD as well as working at OpenAI for the developers' relations. He basically helps you use any OpenAI products and is on your side to improve your relation with OpenAI. In this interview, we dive into large language models, ChatGPT and all the GPT models, OpenAI and more. It's an amazing episode for anyone working with OpenAI products or to anyone that wants to implement something related to GPT in their solution. I hope you enjoy it. My name is Logan Kilpatrick. Um, at the present moment, I, I lead developer relations at OpenAI focused on um, you know, making developers successful who are building with our, with our API or in our plugin ecosystem as part of ChatGPT. Um, outside of that, do a whole <laughs> a whole bunch of stuff. It's a very uh, it's a it's a busy and and fun and exciting life. Uh, help out with a bunch of stuff in the in the Julia programming ecosystem, which is how we originally got connected, Louis. Um, so been doing that for a long time. Been contributing to open source for a long time. Um, also, I, I help. Um, I'm on the board of directors of a nonprofit called NumFocus. NumFocus helps provide the legal and financial infrastructure for open source projects like Jupyter Notebooks, NumPy, Pandas, um, Julia, and, and basically the whole scientific open source ecosystem. So uh, that's a ton of fun and it's uh, an organization I care a lot about. Um, academically, I did started undergrad at a, a community college in California called Dienza College, which is a, a stone's throw away from um, Apple's uh, campus, uh, which I ended up working at. Um, before I joined OpenAI as a machine learning engineer and um, ended up graduating undergrad from Harvard, went back to Harvard for grad school, finishing up grad school there now, as well as at um, Northwestern in, uh, in Chicago and uh, now also a part-time PhD student at the University of uh, Kaiserslautern in, in Germany um, doing applied machine learning. So. Lots of stuff going on, but <laughs> the, the sort of general uh, themes is uh, developers and uh, programming and machine learning stuff is all is all top of mind for me. I didn't even find during my research that you were doing a PhD right now. Is that is that something recent? How how long have been have you been doing that? Yeah, super recent, and also it's been it's been like a slow trickle process, like not spending as much time as I originally intended to mostly just because trying to finish up these master's degrees um, and all the craziness at, at OpenAI. So just yeah. don't have a ton of time for, for research and some of that work right now. But um, yeah, I'm long term uh, going to going to get that done because it's something that's that's important and interesting to me. Awesome. I'm well, I'm also doing a PhD. And one question that I recently had in mind, just because we talked about about that with a recent VP at a startup, which um, his his insights on the PhD was that it may not be worthwhile right now because in the past few years, we've seen a lot of progress in AI research and developing lots of really cool models like transformers, for example. And right now we, we see a lot of opportunities, mainly from OpenAI and other companies to implement those state-of-the-art models that are already extremely powerful, but still required to be more efficient and like every, all the architect, online architecture needs to be improved. So anyways, his argument were, were that 
Um, right now is the time to apply those models and work on productizing, basically. And while research has been um, incredibly beneficial in the past years and may not be worth your time right now. So I, I would really like to know your, your thoughts on this because I'm, I don't know if I'm agreeing, but I'm not completely disagreeing for sure. I'm myself doing a PhD, but also applying it on the, in, in the real world, just like you are. So what, what's your thought on this? Yeah, I, I do think that the, it makes sense from the, the context of, you know, this is a once in a, a lifetime opportunity to go and like actually solve real problems yeah. with AI. And there's so much opportunity to do that. Um, I still think at the end of the day, well, like the reason most people are doing their PhD is for like that research experience. Um, I like my personally, the program that I'm in, I'm doing in a plot, uh, a PhD in applied machine learning. So okay. it's really not focused on, on research stuff because at the end of the day, like I know that's not really what gets me excited. Like what gets me excited is using machine learning to like solve real problems. Um, so fortunate enough to be in a program where I have the capacity to do that. Um, I still think that there's the reality is there's so many open research questions that need to be solved in order to like get the machine learning ecosystem to where it needs to go. So I think it's going to be critical that people hopefully continue to enroll and, and do these PhD programs. Hopefully everyone doesn't just jump ship and try to work at startups um, using machine learning. I, I don't think that that would be net good for uh, for humanity. I think people have to continue to do this research. But right now, someone that would, for example, find AI fascinating and would like to work in the field or at least create something or like build AI stuff, would you recommend them to to do a master's and then PhD only master's go straight into a startup, even if you still recommend like research to, to, to exist? What would be your ideal path right now if it's online in person like you know real university or, or online learning or just creating something going into research what 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 do you think is the the more valuable right now to jump in yeah i think it's tough because it, at the end of the day like it depends what you want as a person like i know i know for myself like the reason i'm doing what i'm doing is because like it's it, it aligns with what my goals are long term yeah it I would say if folks are folks are in that dilemma, reach out to me. Happy to happy to give you some uh, personalized advice on on what I would do in that situation. But at the end of the day, you have to do the things that you're excited about doing. If that's if that's going in and doing research at some university, that's awesome. If it's taking this technology that's exploding and bringing it in the world and solving real world problems and building a company around it, I think that's awesome as well. Um, but folks have got to folks have got to make that decision for themselves yeah but would you say that graduate studies is required to to succeed in the field it's definitely not like i, I think for me most of the stuff that again i'm, I'm not in like a ai research position um so it's 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 slightly different i don't think that it's required i think the reality is a lot of people like everyone on my team at apple for example had um, you know, a PhD or, or a few mm. folks have like a master's in, in machine learning stuff. Um, so I, I do think that that's like the conventional wisdom is folks in machine learning who are doing this work do have graduate backgrounds. Um, I don't think it's required. And I think it's probably becoming less required as undergraduate degrees have like um, s sort of started to give people more experience building AI systems. Like I think probably 
five or 10 years ago, like the only way to do machine learning classes was to go and do the, do a graduate program, which is why everyone had to do that. And I think now like so many undergraduate programs have like machine learning tracks that you can do, which yeah. is uh, incredible. I don't know if a, a degree is still required. I assume it's too early to not be required. So it would be, but online information is also like you can pretty much do everything online and even for free, I think, personal opinion. But yeah, I, unfortunately, the like the, the paper at the end still matters. How did you get into OpenAI without the PhD? Yeah, I, I think, again, for, for the role that I'm in doing developer relations stuff, um, it's it's less common. Like, I don't think most people doing DevRel have a, have a PhD background. I think for me, I put a heavy emphasis personally on like my um, like sort of academic foundation for like understanding in different areas. Uh, I don't think that that's like, that's just what I personally have indexed on. I don't think that that's important, like broadly for people. Um, So like you could probably do a lot of this work without any graduate level studies um, and that's totally fine and, and, and valid. Um, for, for me, my, my journey to open AI involved going on the website and applying for a job and then going through the interview process. So nothing exciting, didn't know anyone at the company, um, didn't have any, any sort of connection, um, beforehand and was, was lucky enough to, to make it through the interview process. Um, so yeah, fortunate in that sense, uh, a bunch of incredible people I got to meet during that process who I, who I now get to work with all the time. Um, so it's, uh, it's been a wild ride. And I also, the, the more interesting thing to me was when I originally started interviewing, this was like back in fall of 2022, like none of the chat GPT stuff had really happened yet. So I was like, yeah, open AI, like this is a cool, it's a cool place. Like, it seems like they're doing really important work. Like would love to get in there and like it, you know, it seems like it's going to be a lot of work to sort of, you know, do what, what would be like traditional developer advocacy, developer relations of like increase the top of funnel awareness about open AI and the technology and all that stuff. And then, uh, by the time my first day came around, my first day was, I'm pretty sure the day that we hit a million chat GPT users. So like from then on, like open AI really has no challenge with like top of funnel awareness about yeah. our product and services. So I'm, I'm really focused on like helping, um, helping our various teams, like improve the core developer experience, um, across the, the API and, and now with chat GPT plugins. Yeah. I'm excited to dive into your role a bit more and just, I want to do two things before that. Um, the first one is. Just if you could, I don't know if you, if it's under NDA or anything like that, but could you describe a bit how, how it looks like to apply at OpenAI and the interview process? Yeah, I, my interview process, I, I don't know if this tracks for, for everybody was, um, and of course this will be like more, uh, sort of prescribed around developer relations stuff, but I applied, had some calls with some of the recruiting team talked to the hiring manager, um, ended up doing a, a take-home assessment, um, basically wrote some tutorials of, at the time about um, some of the, G, the GPT 3.5 capabilities that were available through our API, um, did that tutorial, um, gave it back to the team, they reviewed it, brought me to the next stage, which was like a full set of additional interviews with people across the team, um, and then references and um, ultimately the, the offer stage. But it, it was actually not a, a super painful 
process in general was a lot of um, a lot of fun, a lot of like super smart people asking interesting questions, which is always like I, I like inter- interviews in the sense that like it's fun to like hear what people are are asking, um, like intellectually, like understand the questions that they're asking and like mm-hmm. see how to give some sort of like useful answer to their question. So I, I enjoy that. I hope you enjoyed this interview as well, since we we pretty much <laughs> yeah, do is... a bit of your background review and very similar, a bit less technical maybe, but similar. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you did you need to know about not only about OpenAI but about GPT and their APIs and anything developer related to OpenAI when applying? Like you mentioned that you needed to build a tutorial, so I assume you you needed to understand a bit how it works and everything, but did they expect you to already know what what they offer and how how their products work? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, uh, you're, you're totally right in that, like as part of that take-home assessment, I did have to like have some level of understanding of the API and different things to like actually be able to intelligently write about it. But I, there wasn't like any, um, you know, I wasn't being like quizzed on the on the functionality in the interviews of the API, or the product, or stuff like that, um, or even how, like, despite having a machine learning background from the work that I was doing at at, at Apple, um, like I actually didn't. There was no like um, the the whole like purpose of our API is to abstract away a lot of the complexities of machine learning and make it really simple for developers to actually use the technology. Um, so we don't actually like, there, there's not a lot of heavy emphasis on, at least in the specific role that I have, like machine learning stuff. Because again, the, the idea is any developer, regardless of whether or not you have machine learning background, you should be able to use our technology. Um, so that was sort of representative of the interview process as well. So mm-hmm. like people weren't asking me like, you know, how do I make a GPT type model from scratch and like go through all the steps that, that wasn't part of it. Um, obviously it's good to have that information and I've, I've learned more over time, but, um, still don't have like a, you know, a rigorous background in that area. Yeah. Yeah. That's completely understandable. And so my, my second question before we dive into a bit more into open AI, your role and large language models is to follow up on the tweet that you recently did and uh, maybe you can, would you like to, if, if people want to reach out, I assume one of the best places is on Twitter. So if, uh, feel free, if you'd like to explain a bit what you are doing on Twitter and what's your Twitter account as well. Yeah. Just, just connecting with developers who are, who are building with our technology. Um, Twitter just happens to be the most convenient way for me to do that at the moment, but um, you know, I'm also present and active on, on LinkedIn and also our developer community forum. Um, so all of those, all three of those places I'm, I'm visible, but the, yeah, the, the tweet that, that you mentioned was about, um, vocabulary. Uh, I'm so happy yeah. to, to dive in with you. Yeah, exactly. You, you did a, a very good uh, thread on the vocabulary of like GPT and open AI and I think it, it will be very relevant to the audience, well, to anyone, because almost everybody, well, I will assume everybody used ChatGPT once at least, and will keep using it or, or another similar model and just use it more and more. And so I think it's it's relevant to understand this, this vocabulary behind AIs and large language models, but also just for the interview so that 
it's easier to follow what we are talking about. And so what I had in mind was to a bit redo your tweet, as in I, I will give you some some terms, and I I'd, I'd like if you if I'd like you to try to come up with like a one sentence answer just to describe describe what it is. Um, yeah, so that like just uh, rapid fire definitions, basically. And the first one would rather be a comparison and then definitions. The so the comparison is something that lots of people are don't know the difference between the two and often called ChatGPT4, but it's the difference between ChatGPT and GPT4. Yeah, ChatGPT is a website, it's a UI, it's a engineering product um, that is an interface for OpenAI's machine learning models, of which GPT-4 is one of them. So GPT-4, GPT-3.5, there's a bunch of GPT-3.5 variant models. Um, so those are the actual machine learning models. ChatGPT is the UI in which you interact with the machine learning models. And something I should have probably started with, what is what is a GPT? What is GPT? Yeah, GPT is just the, the architecture of the model, essentially. So GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformers, which is the technology that um, GPT-4 and GPT-3.5, all those models are, are based on that technology. What is a token? Tokens are what the model, how the model understands text. Um, so instead of like understanding text at a word level or a individual character level, it understands at a token level. Um, and if you look up OpenAI tokenizer um, on you know your favorite search engine, you'll be taken to a like a nice visual explanation of of how this tokenizing process actually works. Something very popular at Mila, where, where I'm doing my PhD, is alignment. So could you explain a bit what is alignment? Yeah, alignment is the process of, and there's people who perhaps have a, a different definition here, but uh, taking a base model um, and actually making it more useful to uh, a human. So like right after the training process finishes for a large language model, it's not super useful um, or safe in general in that form, um, but you can go through this whole alignment process to actually make the model more in tune with what humans want to see. What is RLHF? Yeah, RLHF is part of that alignment process in some sense where you actually um, tune the model to look at a bunch of like human preferences. Um, so you can show a bunch of like example outputs and then let users, let real humans decide um, what output is better for them. And then you tune the model to more commonly choose the options that are that are better for, for us as humans to in interpret. And speaking of um, user using the GPT models, what is a, a prompt and a prompt engineer? Yeah, so prompts are just text that you send to the model. Um, and it can be something as simple as a question or a statement or a command, um, but it can also be super intricate, like a multi-paragraph or like 20-step process. So it's essentially what you want the model to do. Prompt engineering is sort of the iterative process of refining the prompt um, to better have it do what you, to better have the model do what you want it to do. So the, the general sense is 
you might not always, the model might not always do what you want the first time you ask. And as you prompt engineer, you like modify your prompt and see if you can get it closer to um, giving an output that you would want. And you mentioned that a prompt is usually a text, but not only. So my, my next one is what is a, a, multi, a modality or a multimodal model? Yeah, multimodal model is a tongue twister. Uh, yeah. So you got to be careful with, with that one. But um, GPT-4 is OpenAI's first multimodal model, um, which just means that it can take uh, text input uh, and image input. So multiple modalities, text and image in this case, um, and in the future, maybe other modalities, but uh, at the present, it's, it's text and image. What is modal hallucination? Yeah, model hallucinations are when you ask, you know, what us humans would consider to be like a factual question, like how many dogs are in the state of uh, Illinois in the United States, the model will generate um, something that appears to be like a potentially uh, valid answer, um, but actually is is potentially like fabricated and, and just completely made up. And that just goes back to the process of how outputs from these large language models are actually created. Um, so in that case, instead of like saying the model is lying or giving us some incorrect answer, we call it a model hallucination. And the last one, which generates a lot of hype recently, what is an agent or a GPT agent? Yeah, so GPT agents is, is this emerging area where essentially instead of going one step at a time and as the human iterating on the prompt and, and adding additional steps um, you actually let the model you, you define a set of goals and you let the model go and write however many prompts and make as many commands as it's required for the model to accomplish whatever the goal it is that you set out um, and this has the potential for some really interesting things some potentially harmful things as well um, and it's it's definitely one of these like emergent use cases of of large language models are you excited about agents or do you think it's overrated i think it's really interesting i think the the challenging situation becomes when the agents start to have the ability to take what what we refer to internally as like destructive actions on behalf of the user um, and that could be that could be a lot of things that could be tweeting something that could be like making an actual like purchase on some website those types of things are not things that that you know people are at OpenAI are generally excited about <laughs> about seeing happen without humans in the loop, like actually making those decisions. For the models to go and do those things by themselves right now doesn't seem like the right, uh, doesn't seem like something that's safe to do. Hmm. Yeah, especially just, we've seen it with just writing a sentence and we, we see hallucinations and plagiarism and other things like that. So. I can believe what could happen if you ask it to code and, and do everything on itself. Yeah. Awesome. So thank you very much. I think it's it's very valuable to anyone listening. Oh, I have a, a, a last one that might be relevant in the near future. What is an AGI? Yeah, so AGI is artificial general intelligence. There's a bunch of different definitions for, for AGI. Um, OpenAI's definition of AGI is when 
um, these artificial intelligence systems are able to do all economically viable work that a human is able to do. So once once we get to that point, that's when OpenAI will check the box that we've <laughs> we've gotten to AGI. But people have very different definitions. Um, like the the Turing test was a sort of an original example of of this, where as long as it was indistinguishable that you were talking to a um, a human or a robot, that might be considered AGI. And I think we've already sort of passed that um, mm. that mark, but. Um, yeah, there's there's a bunch of different definitions. Yeah, and speaking to just, I wanted to ask you this a little further in the interview, but since you are talking about trying to imitate a human, would you have any, since you are heavily involved with the GPT suit model, models, would you have some tips or insights into how to make a model better not necessarily impersonate you, but be more human when writing something. Like if you are using a GPT assistant for, for writing blog articles or anything, um, it's usually not easy, but it, it feels weird when you read something that has been generated, like it feels generated. Well, to me, I, I feel like. And so do you have any tips to make it more human? Yeah. The maybe not necessarily make it more human, but like make it more in line with the the style in which you write as an individual, for example. Um, the, the most effective way of doing this today is by uh, giving it like a, a, a single shot example of, of mm. how you write. Um, this will become, my guess is like much more prevalent as models with 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 larger context come online so we we released uh gpt4 with 32k context which just means the model can accept as input up to 32,000 tokens which is like 30 pages of of written typed text um and now you can imagine how powerful it is if you for example copy and paste a couple of your blog posts into the context of the model and you say here's an example of how i write Here's this new topic, which I'm interested in writing about. Here are the points that I want to make on the topic. Um, now go ahead and, and interpret the style of my writing and go and write a new blog post. And the model can actually do a really good job in, in those types of situations um, of understanding your style and then applying it to some new, um, some new novel domain. Oh, nice. I, I didn't even consider doing... Like I, I've tried to send a few, like just write a little bit and ask it to try to imitate, but I could definitely send it more complete. Like you said single, single shot, like sending one blog example, but would you say that it's even better to send a few shot, a few, a few examples? How, how long should it be? Do, do you have some insights on how much should the model see from you in order to be able to imitate you? Yeah, I think this is more of an art than a science right now. I think it probably depends on like how, maybe how nuanced your writing style is. Like if you have some like very different writing style, maybe it's possible for the model to like pick up on that with a single shot because it's so different than the information that it has in mm -hmm. its sort of corpus of knowledge. But if you're like, I feel like the way I write is like very standard and there's nothing like special about my writing. Yeah. So um, you might need like more examples to like pick up on like the nuances that like make my writing what it is um so that's that's the sort of simple heuristic that i use but there's yeah it's it's definitely not a not a perfect science right now yeah definitely 
And staying in the same topic, would you have any tips to fix the, to my, to me, the biggest problem with GPT generated content, which is hallucinations or plagiarism in general? Would you have any in, insights or tips either directly within when using GPT, like ask it some prompting something to, to, um, to make sure it doesn't happen. Well, not make sure, but to limit the the, case, the number of cases hallucination happen or something to do afterward to be sure your content is is not plagiar, plagiarizing anything or just hallucinating anything. Yeah, solving the hallucination problem is interesting. And I, I would say that I, my understanding is that it's something that is going to continue to, to improve over time. Um, with with subsequently new models like with GPT four, I think the the metric and um, I invite folks to go and uh, check out the GPT four technical report that came out with GPT four, which I think has the specific numbers. But if I recall correctly, I think it was a forty percent improvement in factualness mm-hmm. um, of the model on our sort of internal evaluations over our, our previous best performing models. So it's you know we're definitely making strides in that direction. I think the reality of large language models is that it's always going to have that um, hallucination problem to a certain extent. Um, I do the the interesting thing, and, and not to say that you know there won't be some technical solution to this in the future, but it's actually this is actually true of um, human systems as well. Like there's a bunch of things which I I know to be true, um, or I think are, and have a high degree of confidence which are true, which actually aren't true. And I think I, I just experienced this the other day, and I was talking to my um, girlfriend about something really simple. And it, it just like the way, like the, the correct way to brush your teeth. I had, you know, my lived experience of brushing my teeth a specific way, um, it, you know, for my entire life actually isn't the, and she was telling me this and I was like, Oh, you know, I'm not sure if I understand that when it looked up a bunch of stuff and she, and she was totally right. And I had been doing it wrong. And, and, and I was very confident in, in the way that I was doing it, um, sort of sub up suboptimally um and i think that's a great example of like this is not uh like it's not going to these systems will never be perfect and the interesting part is like humans aren't perfect at this either i do think that part of the solution to the hallucination problem will end up being the the chat plugin ecosystem so being able to take um, a bunch of different knowledge sources fact check things in real time, yeah. add in sources in real time, all that's going to be possible with the plugin ecosystem. So you could imagine like, you know, you generate some text, then you have to connect the Wikipedia plugin and sort of get you references for all the stuff that you're, that are, is being generated. And then you can go and like confirm those references and, and fact check and make sure things look okay. Um, so I think that the things like that will, will solve uh, part of this problem as well. Yeah. Since it's a human trait, it's definitely normal that that an AI is just amplifying it, but it's really cool. Yeah, the plugin, the, the plugins definitely are a good way to maybe not fix it, but to improve that. Especially the like the ones based memory retrieval based, basically where you can easily cite where you got your information from. That would be ideal in this case, just like we usually do when writing anything. And allowing AIs to do that as well would be would be very would be very good. And so, just well, I won't be switching topics a whole lot. But 
let's let's go to OpenAI versus large language models in general. And I'd love to know. I'm myself not that familiar with what is a developer advocate. So could you maybe describe what is this role and maybe what you do in your what you do in your day to day life? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think going back to the the story at the beginning about the interview process, I think traditionally developer advocacy has been about how can I increase top of funnel awareness yeah. about my product or service so that more developers understand how to build. And that's like, you know, speaking at conferences, writing tutorials, all that type of stuff. Um, because of the space that OpenAI is in, not only with the unprecedented, unprecedented amount of like inbound interest about the company, but also the fact that like we have a lot of like core things to still figure out and like build from a like OpenAI has OpenAI historically has been like an artificial intelligence research lab. Um, so we didn't have commercially available products. We didn't have a consumer facing product until December of last year with with ChatGPT coming online. Um, so all of the stuff around like our actual core product experience still needs a, a bunch of work. Um, and that's where I spend a majority of my time is like, how can we make these products better for developers? Um, how can we, you know, make sure developers have what they need to succeed when they're building with our API um, from all the way from like rate limits on our API to like the documentation around our models and tutorials and examples and um, all that type of stuff, helping folks with hackathons, educational resources. Um, so it's it's all over the board. Um, right now, I'm more so focused on helping in the plugin ecosystem, just because there's uh, a, a lot of work to do there to like help build this entire ecosystem from scratch. Um, so it's been a ton of fun, but uh, it's yeah, lots of lots of work that still needs to happen on the on the plugin side. Yeah, it sounds like a really exciting role, and especially with as you mentioned, the millions of users for for ChatGPT and just for OpenAI products, it's. I assume it might be like the craziest time for this role. It it like completely changes what you have to do and focus on. It's it's super cool. It's like sounds yeah. really interesting. Yeah, and at the end of the day, like the I'm I'm really privileged to be in the position where like this is this is the stuff that all things equal, like I would want to be doing with my time, regardless of if, if, if of if it was my job. Um, and I think seldom do you find like a situation where, where you're in that position. So I'm, I'm aware of that. And it's, um, it's awesome. Like, I, I love doing this stuff. Like I love helping developers. It's what gets me excited. I love building stuff like this. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a ton of fun. It's, yeah, you're, you're totally right. There's a lot of, it's a tremendous amount of work these days, but um, it's also like a tremendous amount of fun. And uh, the, the team at OpenAI is also incredible and it makes it uh, even even more enjoyable. I've seen another of your recent tweet about your, I don't know if it, like your goals or your mission with, with your role at OpenAI. And you, 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 you said that it was basically to ship one thing that would help developers each day. And so would you have any more specific example of how you are doing that for, I assume when you mentioned developers, it's for people using OpenAI's products. So exactly. how, how are you helping them? And could, could you give very concrete examples of helping developers for this? Yeah, this is a, this is a great question. I think a lot of this materializes itself in the form of like, 
documentation things that aren't super clear um, that we need to make more clear. I think one, uh, a sort of tangential example to this is um, when we released GPT 3.5 and GPT 4, originally we had like, uh, this is a, a simple example, but we had actually preset, uh, there's two different versions of the, of the model that you can call via the API. There's one which is just GPT 3.5 or GPT uh, 4, and that's like the continuously updating version. So we're like, uh, we, we might have talked about this before already, but there, there will essentially continue to be newer versions of these models available over time. Um, and there's also like a snapshot version, which basically takes the model um, in its current form and like it has a fully qualified name. So GPT 3.5-0314, which is like the or 03, yeah, 14, something like that, which is like the date in which the model was released. Um, and those models we originally set out were going to be deprecated after three months from release. And something that I flagged to the team, which um, a couple of weeks ago, and we ended up uh, sort of resolving this, was that, hey, it doesn't really actually make sense for us to preset the deprecation time of these models until we have like a new candidate model that's going to replace mm -hmm. it. Basically, right now, we've, we have told people like, these models are going to go away on June 1st and June 14th, um, but there's no replacement yet. Um, and I think that's like a really confusing narrative yeah. of, as a developer. You're like, well, what am I supposed to do? You haven't even given me something new to try. Um, so we ended up just updating that policy where now um, our models are only the three month step, the three month deprecation window um, specifically for GPT 3.5 Turbo and GPT 4 starts uh, three months after the new candidate model has been released, um, which hasn't happened yet. Therefore, the three month uh, deprecation timer hasn't hasn't like clicked on yet. And that's just like one example of um, sitting back and like thinking about what we need to do to to do do right by developers. Um, and it's a it's a small example, but I think it's it's important. Yeah, so anything it, it's just like you would be the bridge between users and OpenAI itself. You are you basically try to impersonate the developers and see their their needs or upcoming needs and try to optimize their their use of OpenAI and how like how friendly user it is, I assume. Yeah, and, and not even impersonating our, our users or developers. Like at the end of the day, like I feel very like I am a developer and like I feel the same pain points that the that the folks who are our customers feel. Um, and I think that that's like that was the is the most important thing to me is to stay close to that and stay close to which is why I'm on on Twitter and and seeing and understanding like what people are building, what the feedback they're giving is, and like trying to yeah. make sure that I keep a pulse on um, on how we can make things better for people. And for all the people, just like me or any other that that work in the field, we are like pretty much everybody either loves or hate OpenAI, but we all like are fascinated about OpenAI, and lots of people want to work there. And so I just have a question for you related to working there. Could you give a bit more insights into what is it like to work there and their culture and mission and how, how it feels and impact your work? Yeah, it's, you know, I think the perhaps the, the best analogy is it's, it's, you know, it's the Manhattan project for AGI. Like it's, 
the the smartest researchers and and engineers in the world that are all focused on making artificial general intelligence and I and artificial intel, general intelligence that actually benefits um, everybody in a positive way I think is the is the lens in which everything that we do is is sort of viewed through um, so it's yeah it's a lot of focus on safety on alignment on pushing the boundary of what's possible um, which I think is super exciting and of course I'm sort of you know I'm not doing that research work but I do think that the the iterative deployment of our technology, which is what I'm involved in, is critical to the success of, of actually creating AGI and also making sure that, that AGI benefits people. Like the reality is if we don't iterative, iteratively deploy this technology um, and OpenAI just sat in a lab and with the doors closed for six years, seven years, 10 years, whatever it is, and then in the future we just released AGI, like the effect on humanity would be much worse than... Um, yeah. us sort of iteratively showing people this technology as it becomes available and, and them understanding what the impact is going to be in their own life. Um, so I think that that sort of narrative is like very um, top of mind and we're always talking about it. Again, from a, a work perspective, just a bunch of incredibly smart, amazing people um, who I who I love working with. And, um, you know, th there's also a ton, it's worth noting, there's a ton of people who are thinking about developers who aren't me. Um, I think I have like the, um, I have the most latitude to spend like as most of my time thinking about this, but I think there's a bunch of other folks. We have a whole solutions team, a support team, a bunch of people are on our developer platform team um, who also care deeply about making sure developers um, have what they need and are successful. Um, so I, I love that. It's, it's a lot more fun that like, there's a ton of alignment around wanting mm -hmm. to make sure we do right by developers. And it's not just like me fighting this uphill battle. Like people really do care about this. Um, it's also a ton of work. Like there's <laughs> the reality is there's just so much happening. So spend a lot of my um, waking hours every day doing this work. But at the end of the day, again, it's, um, it's super fun. So it's, uh, it could be worse. I could be doing something a lot that I really didn't like. And thankfully I'm doing something a lot that I, that I really enjoy. Yeah, it's basically a startup a startup approach to research. So it's it's a bit new and really cool. It's I think also it's really interesting just to to deploy all your progress with like just uh, iteratively. I think it's a great approach as well. And just we've seen the jump with GPT three and then ChatGPT that like blew up everything. So I cannot I. I like, I wouldn't like to see a jump between GPT-3 and then an AGI. <laughs> that would be even more crazy and dangerous. I don't know. It's uh, like, it's, yeah, the, the difference is already crazy. So yeah, I can't believe what would happen if, if we don't even do this iteratively like this. And you mentioned safety, which leads me to, to, to a question that I'm interested in. And it's also related to your own role right now and is it's since you are closely related to the developers using OpenAI and uh, building lots of startups products companies using these apis and just the models that you have are there any steps that you are taking or anything that you do to ensure that the technology is being used in a responsible way in in a, yeah, in a safe way 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think this one one angle of this is one I'm I'm not part of our trust and safety team who really takes the the lead on this along with some of the policy folks that we have. Um, but it, th these people are are world class and um, some of the the most thoughtful people that I've that I've worked with. Um, so it's it's amazing to have them like helping us navigate this uncharted terrain, which I think is the the uh, easy way of putting it. Historically, OpenAI for our API, what, what we actually used to do, and this is actually similar to what um, Microsoft, Microsoft Azure does right now with, they, they have a sort of uh, peripheral version of our API that's available to Azure customers, um, where you essentially like have to apply and like do all this stuff to get access. Um, OpenAI used to do that with our API, where you actually like had to tell us, uh, you had to like go through this like review process to like take a, um, product or service using our API into production. Um, the challenge became that like that doesn't scale to the millions of people who want to build cool things with our technology. Um, so there's there's sort of two angles of this um, now that are, are super top of mind and it's, it's how we ensure that the technology is used safely. One is on the model side. So making sure, um, and GPT-4 is a great example of this. So the, the training for GPT-4 happened, stopped, like the model was like finished and, and in its final form, essentially, um, six months before we released the model to the public. Um, and during that six month period of time, um, that's really where all the like, you know, additional like tons and tons of labor around making sure that the model is aligned, it's safe, it's not giving outputs that um, are dangerous or, or harmful to people. Um, so that, that's like a critical part of this. There's also, I guess, maybe three steps of this. The the second piece is like getting feedback iteratively from developers. So like as we see these emergent things happening um, around like bias in the model or it doing harmful outputs, things like that, um, you know, we can adapt, we can retrain the model, we can put in that updated feedback and data and, and make the model better so that it doesn't continue to do stuff that's harmful. Um, and then the last piece is actually like the trust and, and safety team has uh, various like safety uh, monitoring, filtering capabilities to like understand um, emergent, uh, potentially negative use cases that people are, are using our models for. Um, so there, yeah, it's a bunch of different stuff happening, but in general, I think we're, we're doing as much as we can to, to make sure that uh, people use this technology positively. And I think the yeah the bulk of the work happens on the model itself um, to make sure that the model isn't inclined to like give. Um... Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And speaking of all the interesting applications that the people are building using GPT models, what is the maybe most, since I, I assume you are probably the best placed for this question. And, and so what, what is the most, to you, the most promising or interesting product that you've seen using GPT or like OpenAI's products? Yeah, there's there's two that come to mind. Um, one is uh, Khan Academy, uh, which is a, a global platform for people to learn any subject K through 12, I'm pretty sure, um, actually built a AI tutoring capability using uh, GPT-4 and they, they came up on all these really interesting novel problems. Like for example, 
the models are are designed to give you an answer to your question. So if you ask yeah. it, you know, what's one plus one, the model really wants to give you the answer of two. It's 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 hard to not get it to give you that answer. Um, and you can imagine for Khan Academy as a, a platform focused on education and like helping students learn how to solve these problems themselves. It's a really interesting use case to think, okay, how do we take this model that really wants to give you an answer and make it so that it doesn't give people the answer? How do we help students come to that answer themselves? Um, and Khan Academy worked with us for that, that whole six month period basically and did a bunch of incredible work to make sure that um, with a bunch of incredible folks internally at OpenAI to make sure that the model sort of worked well for their use case. So they've now built that, I think it's called Conmigo is the name of their like AI tutor. Um, and you can imagine, like, I'm, I'm so excited to see the use cases of this technology in the education space, like a, having a world-class tutor available to every student in the world who is always there, cares about you, um, and wants to help you learn something, I think is the is going to be so game-changing. Like, for me, in undergrad, I remember, like, I was paying some uh, math tutor to help me get through calculus, like, $50 an hour, $100 an hour, something like that during undergrad, just because like I was having a really hard time with um, with multivariable calculus. And uh, like it would have been so game changing for me to like have an AI tutor that could like help me identify the gaps in my understanding, give me customized problems, always be there to help me and it be absolutely free. Like that would have been so crazy. Um, so I'm, I'm super bullish on that use case. The other one is a completely different example, a company called Waymark. Um, Waymark essentially allows you to put in like a couple sentences about a, like almost like a promotional video you want to create. And it like goes and like creates this really snappy with images, with video transitions, with all the like text showing up um, for like a, yeah, for whatever you put in. So I've done it for like conferences that I've been involved with for some nonprofits that I'm involved with. And like, the technology is super, super cool. And it's using, oh. um, yeah, it's, it's using, uh, GPT four, I think maybe GPT 3.5. So it's, it's incredibly exciting. And what do you think of auto GPT and other agents GPT? We've talked about this just before the podcast, but I'd love to hear your thoughts live in here because it's, it really blew everything up just on GitHub. It, it has now, I think like. 102,000 stars. So wow. it's, it's very crazy. And yeah, I wonder what you, you think about this. Yeah, it's, it's inter It's a, definitely an interesting use of the technology. I haven't tried auto GPT. I tried agents GPT, um, which I think was maybe slightly before or around the same time as, as auto GPT less popular though. Um, I think my general concern is around like the model taking destructive actions on behalf of users. So like the model going and, you know, making a purchase or sending out a tweet or actually like doing something that could have like a, a net tangible negative outcome for, for somebody. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I think that's, that's more of my concern. I do think that it's like, it's cool technology. It's a cool application and I can see how it could be really useful for people. Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, generally concerned, uh, about, uh, about those destructive actions. And, and we've done a bunch of things like a, a great example of like how to find a common ground for this is, um, if you look at the, the Zapier, uh, plugin in ChatGPT, 
it, you can ask it to like write tweets for you, you know, buy things on Instacart and the way that they handle it with, um, I think Instacart does this independently of Zapier, but like with Instacart, it'll just like create a bunch of things in your cart for you and give you a link. You can click on it and then you can go and make that purchase yourself as a human with Zapier for tweeting things. It'll like create you the draft tweet, give you a link. You can click on it. You can review it. Um, and then make the decision about whether you really want to tweet that. So it's not actually taking an action on behalf of you, but it's like queuing the action up. And I, I like really, really like that paradigm of like, for, for us as humans in the future, you can imagine I, you know, wake up in the morning and I have this whole queue of like AI actions, suggested AI actions where the model's like, here, you know, I've drafted this follow-up for a bunch of emails that you didn't respond to yet. You're like, give it a quick review and then like press send. And like, I can have like all of my applications and things that I need to follow up on in this like pre-vetted list of AI yeah. things. Um, I, I really like that. That user interface like makes a ton of sense to me mentally. And I, I hope that we... Yeah, so keeping control on what the AI does. But at the same time, I wonder if we would have some fear of missing out. For example, if you asked, if you asked the model to invest for you on a day-to-day -day basis, and then it suggests you some things, but you are sleeping, it, that would be like you could miss out on on some stuff. And also related to your own, like related to time consuming, I I know that for instance the the four-hour work week book by Tim Ferriss, like he he advocates to to delegate most of your work just so that you are you have the the mind empty and you can focus on on what you want to focus so just like this you can also delegate lots of things to ai but you all i don't know like there there's definitely a middle ground between keeping control and allowing it to do whatever just so you you are free of mind about that it's a it's a complicated middle ground to find yeah, and I think this goes back to like, if it's some destructive action or it's some action that like might have an adverse effect, like those are the things that I would personally really like to like be able to be the final decision maker. Like despite how yeah. good the technology might be, like I want to be the one who clicks the button to tweet on my account or like respond to someone's question on a forum or an email or something. I don't want the AI to just do that for me. Um so I, I really do think that this like human in the loop is going to be, and like, again, it, it, if it's giving these great outputs and like, I don't have to do that work, like that's a, like, if I just have to click send in, in like a long queue, like that's a huge net win for me. Like I don't have to spend all the time to like read through and handle all the follow-up stuff. Um, so I, I think that will be super awesome. Yeah, definitely. And just as we've seen with hallucinations and pledge, plagiarism, I think we always want to be sure it's like, as, as we said, it's mostly a human error and it's just generalized to artificial intelligence because they are trained with our data. So it, they do the same kind of errors that we do. And it's always better to be sure that I'm not sure if it's better, but it's, it, it's better to be sure that it's our error than the model's error. At least you can apologize or, or correct yourself, but yeah, double checking is still required and that's a bit why i'm afraid of like agents and auto gpt just because we see it we see it hallucinating a lot with only text and so yeah i'm i'm wondering what can happen if we allow it to code and do lots of other things as well 
without our control or supervision. That's like not it, that's a bit concerning. But yeah, and I think a lot of people feel the same way that you do. And I, I'm yeah, I'm hopeful that we'll we'll find somewhere that's a nice a nice middle ground. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And speaking of um, tools and productivity, since it was uh, you mentioned your your net time and and gaining time basically, which is a <laughs> A huge personal issue. It's we all we always want to have more time, and yeah, I think that that will stay even if we if we have an AI that does everything for us. I think we will still want to have more time. But anyways, um, are there any products that you've seen using GPT that helps you like yourself personally for productivity already? Not not waiting for agent GPT and other even more powerful. Um, products yeah i mean uh, of course i'm using ChatGPT all day to do a bunch of stuff um i think it's harder for me uh because i'm so close to the technology and like see all the things that we're that we're working on to be um to use some of the other things that are out there just because like i yeah I, i don't think i've i've had a better experience than using uh chat chat itself I think historically, I was actually a, a Jasper um, AI customer for a, a long time before I joined OpenAI. Um, so I think they they have a really compelling product. That's they've done a nice job of like making well suited for a bunch of different uh, use cases. I think I'm really excited as a developer about the stuff that GitHub is working on around AI and like being able to have an AI like take the first pass at reviewing my pull requests, I think is going to be like, that's going to be such a net positive for the developer ecosystem to like have an extra set of eyes. And like, you can imagine like, you know, I maintain a bunch of open source software. There's people who would maintain way more open source software than me. And like to have the first pass at these things be done by yeah. AI, it's just going to be like, take the burden off of like already burdened developers. Um, So those are the things that are are most top of mind for me. I think I spend most of my time on on GitHub and using uh, ChatGPT and things like that. So those are the two things um, for me. Do you have any tips on better using ChatGPT for coding? Yeah, I I think the thing that I do most common now is one of those examples that I gave earlier, where I'm I'm putting in as much context as I can about the problem that I'm trying to solve, whether it's like examples of similar, like I, I did this recently with um, something really simple, which is adding a open AI has like a playground where you can try out some of our models. Um, and I just wanted to like add a clear button so that when you were done using the stuff, if you want to like make a new version of this, you press clear and it clears the stuff out. Um, and the, the code base uses react and I don't have any like, formal training or practice using React. So I just put in a bunch of the context, described what I wanted to do. The model is actually able to generate me the, the React code that I needed to add this feature, which was really cool. Um, it didn't end up like fully solving and I still needed to have a human in the loop to like help answer some of the questions because it wasn't fully working. Um, but like the initial first pass did a good job because I gave it enough context about what I was mm. trying to do. That context seems very important. And um, I'm not sure if you will be able to answer the next question or just if you can answer the next question, but I'd love to, to know if there are any upcoming interesting OpenAI features or 
products that aren't released yet, but that you are excited about? Is there something you can say about this or not really? Yeah, so two things that I'm really excited about. One, broadly plugins being available to more people I'm super excited about. I think specifically DALI, um, OpenAI's image generation capability will become available in ChatGPT via a plugin. Um, so I think that's going to be awesome. And I, I just tweeted that that out earlier today. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited about that. I think the only other thing is uh, GPT-4 with image capabilities, which we uh, announced at the GPT-4 yeah. developer live stream, but haven't actually made available to developers yet. Um, so once that becomes available, there's a ton of interest and the model is so capable. It's, it's incredible. Um, like seeing like the superhuman level of like, ability to describe like if you take a screenshot of like us talking right here like you can understand that like you know we're talking in the context of a podcast in this way and yeah. it can describe the web ui and what's behind us in both and they can describe like the stuff we're wearing and like if I, i'm wearing glasses and airpods and all that stuff um so it, it's incredible and like that way beyond some of the other stuff that i've seen so it's it, there's going to be so many cool use cases Yeah, I'm super excited to see that. And speaking of of companies, you, I know that you are helping developers a lot. And so is there any common mistakes or either mistakes or misconceptions, but something that is recurring in your work that you help developers with when building these startups, products, and everything? Yeah, I think one of the biggest opportunities that people aren't taking advantage of is embeddings. Like I think embedding your knowledge base, which for folks who aren't familiar, is just the process of taking text in text format and turning it into a numerical format that uh, machine learning systems can understand. So you can imagine you take, you know, the entire corpus of knowledge that your company has, you embed it. And then you add a chat layer on top of it using the OpenAI ChatGPT API. And now you can like ask ChatGPT type questions and have the knowledge base that it's pulling from be the information that your company has that you know to be true, which is the most the most impactful part of this. So you don't need to worry. I mean, there's still the possibility for hallucinations, but like the core data that it's pulling from is your data. Um, And, you know, I think historically people have been concerned about giving that data to OpenAI because um, before March 1st of, of 2023, we were actually training on some portion of the data that people submitted via our API, unless you opted out of that, um, starting on, on March 1st. So today, um, now that we're in April, we don't uh, we don't train on any of that data. So you can embed all that, the, the sort of potentially proprietary data that you have add this chat layer on top of it using our API and not have to worry about like, you know, OpenAI is going to use this data to make their models better and potentially expose some of the, you know, secrets or whatever it is that you have in that information. Um, folks don't need to worry about that anymore when, when using our API, which is really cool. So um, it, it just opens up the ability to like solve these really comp like I remember being at Apple um, and like, just like trying to figure out like, <laughs> just like simple things was like really hard because yeah the knowledge was so like tucked away in different places and like wasn't accessible to me. So I'd spend like hours trying to find the answer to this question when if I had this chat layer and the information embedded, it would have been like a simple 30 second fix for the solution. Yeah, I think we will see it appear in a lot of companies just 
for just like me as well in my internships and job we had like in the bigger companies there are a lot of documentation and i don't know if it's something here where i live but it's usually pretty bad and very difficult to find what you are looking for and so having a chatbot that that's is everywhere i think that's yeah. everywhere. <laughs> in every every company ever it's pretty bad yeah it's like just when it's too big it becomes you can you can just not do anything and yeah this is where some kind of memory retrieval algorithm that it, like an algorithm that is using some kind of memory and with embeddings as you mentioned is super interesting we um, a friend of mine is actually working on this he called it well i don't know i think I, I cannot really say the name but anyways he he's working on on creating a product based on memory retrieval and large language models and i think there's a lot of opportunities for that like as long as the the companies are comfortable sharing the data and or at least like if there's a way to to keep this private or within the intranet of the company that that will be super powerful super interesting and speaking of cool gpt products i think just like this one a lot of people are trying to build gpt products even non-developers or people that never done this before i i have a friend that is a that is working in hr recruiting more specifically and he has no programming background at all but he's learning ai and trying to use ai to to do a better job so like pretty much everyone is getting into the field and so i i would have some tips for you and even if you are focused on on developers i assume some of the developers you help aren't really developers either and so what would be your tips to get started into implementing something from OpenAI, like mainly GPT, we, we, we should say, when having no software skills, like no programming skills or nothing from the developer field as a background, just anyone, basically how, like, is there a, a path to follow or, or any, yeah, any general tips that you could give to help them get started implementing GPT? Yeah, I, I think probably the, the best thing folks in that position can do, and I just went through this exercise a couple of weeks ago with um, one of my one of my friends, but um, products and tools like Zapier. So Zapier is a is a low slash no code tool that you can like build integrations with all the software that you use. Um, they actually have an integration with OpenAI's API, so you can put in an API key and you can do things like. Every time you get an email to your Gmail inbox, for example, um, you can have uh, GPT-3 or GPT-4 take a first pass on actually creating a draft response to that email, which I think is really, really cool. Um, and that works today. Like you can do that right now. That's totally possible. And I think there's a bunch of other really interesting use cases where you can build in this AI automation into your workflows without having to do any coding um, using a tool like Zapier. And again, if you want to learn how to code, you know, you can use a tool like ChatGPT to like help you learn and, and figure out the required things, but you also don't have to do that. And I think the future where people don't have to code and can still leverage this technology, I think is, is a, an exciting feature and, and one that yeah. at least the folks at Zapier are, are, are pushing us towards, which is awesome. And then if programming wouldn't be required, are there any skills that would be required in your opinion? 
I don't think so. I think having like a general understanding of the technology is the most important thing and like understanding the, the use cases that it solves. But I don't think you like the prompt engineering piece of it is like part of it, I think, where like you do need to kind of have that. Um, like, but I think that's kind of like an iterative thing. And there's a lot of good yeah. resources out there, like learnprompting.org, I think is one of those or .com. Um, they have a bunch of like great prompting yeah. courses and stuff like that. Yeah, it's my my friend Sander that created learnprompting.org. Oh, nice! Yeah, yeah, I know. I chatted with Sander and and some of the other folks on his team um, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it's he's done an amazing job, and we are in fact kicking off a hackathon very shortly. So, pretty excited about that. But yeah, it's it's really cool how there's basically nothing required about uh, to to implement or like create something using gpt except as you mentioned i believe also that it's it's maybe not required but it's interesting to understand how gpt models work and especially how they were trained like with what kind of data just so you you are able to produce more efficient or like better prompts to get what you want as a as an output it's just like like understanding how how google works like it's my, my dad still uh, writes a whole question and like he he just cannot really use the uh, google and we in, in the opposite we we find it very easy to find exactly what we want with just one research we don't have to change keywords or like formulate our question differently we just use google and we learned how to use this and yeah it's it's a you can learn this through an iterative process but i think it helps to just understand what how, how it was built and how it works to then directly try to formulate your your needs the the right way or the the optimal way and um yeah speaking of, of needs i i would like if you could try to demystify a bit what are the different gpt models and when to use which for the audience like for example for someone that wants to build a product that does x when to use GPT-4 or uh, GPT-3.5 or Turbo or like all the different suit, the different models of the suit. When when would you use which model? Yeah, I, I think the probably the biggest decision folks have to make is around using GPT-3.5 versus GPT-4. Um, some folks don't have access to GPT-4, so it makes the decision really easy if they only have access to 3.5, therefore that's what they have to use, but that will change over time. Um, GPT-4 is much costlier, um, so it's you, you have an incentive to use 3.5 in general to solve problems as much as possible. GPT-4 and, and actually the output from GPT-3.5 and GPT-4 is actually generally for non-complicated tasks very similar um so you won't like note if you like ask it to like do something really simple like you know some like addition or you know solves like write like a basic python function the output is going to be almost identical um, where you start to see the difference for gpt4 is around like much more complicated and intricate problem solving so mm -hmm. like multi-step um constraints and and specific requirements the gpt4 model is much better at solving those problems than 3.5 is um, all of our other models there's pretty much like only or all the other modalities there's only like one model that so for embeddings text embedding ada 002 is the the 
state-of-the-art model uh, for images. There's only one for audio, it's Whisper. Um, so it's re really the biggest decision is around 3.5 versus 4. And if you can afford to use 4 for whatever the application is, it's, it's going to do better in general. Um, but if you don't have to use it, 3.5 has better um, latency and um, lower costs, which is great. Awesome. I have three last questions that are a bit annoying to me, but I, I like to ask them. And one of which is like the worst question that I've never been able to answer, but I, I will end with that one. It's not <laughs> nothing scary. Um, the first, the, the first question that I would like to ask you is, is there one thing that AI still cannot do that you would like it to do? Like one thing that you would like help from AI that it, but it's not yet able to perform well enough. I'm, I'm really excited for video content and I've seen there's a bunch of stuff recently um, where yeah, companies are showcasing some of the new video models that they have available, but text to video seems really cool. Um, I'm, I think like, yeah, making like more complicated outputs and like actually having these AI systems like create this thing um, or like, you know, helping me create stuff like uh, in Unity, for example, where like you don't, can't always like program everything. You have to like work through a visual interface. Um, I think there's a bunch of interesting problems like that where the models can't yet solve and it's just like a completely different problem that it has to figure out. So hopefully it can do things like, uh, things like that in the future. And what is the, I think it's, it's very relevant to what you said, but what's the biggest challenge right now facing the AI industry or more specifically open AI? Like what's the, yeah, the most complicated challenge that we are tackling or, or have to tackle? Yeah, I think actually the biggest challenge that the, the AI community is going to have to face in the next like couple of years is going to be around like where the, the common sense regulations come into play. Like there's so much, yeah, interesting stuff happening in the, in the regulate, the regulator space across the world right now. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it all, how it all shakes out. But I think, um, yeah, it's, it's clear that, that it's it's going to be important to figure out some some productive way of, of moving forward in that in that sense yeah definitely and speaking of of figuring out the way to to move forward this is this leads to my the last question that that i don't like to answer personally maybe you already have your mind on it but how do you see ai evolving over the next five years or so just in the maybe near future yeah i think it's going to become ubiquitous people are going to have access to this technology it's going to do more and more of those things like we talked about before having like a ai take the first pass at a lot of a lot of different options uh, a lot of different things in your life um i think my my feeling is that it's going to be a net very much a net positive for people like i don't have to do the work that i'm not excited about i'm mm -hmm. going to have this powerful technology which is going to be able to help me um so i'm i'm really excited i think there's so much thoughtful work that's happening at OpenAI and other places that I'm, I'm really optimistic that, that we're going to get to the right place, despite a lot of the, the apprehension and fear that, that yeah. folks have. Yeah, lots of, I feel like, um, I don't know how, how long ago, but a few years ago, lots of people were afraid that 
AI would basically just help companies to increase the gap between rich and poor, like in made very simply. While I see that, especially since ChatGPT, it in fact does quite the opposite. Like it allows us to to do things that we couldn't be, do before, and it, it democratizes a lot of stuff. Just in my opinion, in my case, I'm like a French native speaker, and for me, it's it's kind of hard to to speak in English and write in English, and so it's just using ChatGPT to help me improve my syntax and formulation for what I write is incredibly useful. It just improves my writing a lot, and I try not to be dependent on it. I always try to just see why how why it sounds better and what it changed just to myself improve but i i feel like the, yeah ai in general is basically doing the opposite of of what we expected to expected it to do and i i find it very cool it's really nice how how it helps people that that don't have like all the capacity to to do everything yeah, it wasn't a great sentence, but I'm 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 really glad to see that we can use AI to improve, and this is highly thanks to companies like OpenAI that allows us to use ChatGPT for free or like very cheaply, and that's really cool, especially because you need like lots of GPUs and things like that to to use it yourself or to create it yourself. That's even worse. So pretty cool, pretty cool. And this leads to my very last question for you. And then I will stop bothering you. Um, my, my last question is just uh, around what you are doing and your projects. We, we, we know that you are focusing on, on OpenAI. And I, I would like to ask you, what else are you working on? Like, for example, you mentioned the PhD, but what, what are your personal projects, PhD or other? What's your, maybe what's your PhD about or just... What you are? What are you exciting to work? Excited to work on, other than OpenAI? Yeah, I think that the top of mind thing for me that I'm I'm working towards is actually teaching. Um, I, I just joined the um, the instructor faculty at uh, Stanford's continuing education department, so I'm teaching a course this summer there on programming in Julia and um, having to do a lot of uh, a lot of prep and and work to build that course and get it off the ground, but I'm super excited. I think it'll be, oh. um, yeah, it's, it's going to be a ton of fun and hopefully um, more people learning to program and more people learning Julia is uh, a net positive thing for the world. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. So teaching PhD and open AI, all, <laughs> like how, how are you managing to do all that? Lot, uh, I get good sleep every night and work as hard as I can during the day. Yeah, I think, I think sleep is... I don't know if it's underrated. I feel like since Matthew Walker and and even yeah. Huberman, it's been like sleep is now recognized as truly be, being helpful. Whereas like five years ago, it was the startup world of like sleeping three hours and just trying to work more. I I, I really enjoy this this shift of giving more importance to to sleep. It's it's really hey, cool. I'm like. People don't want to sleep. That's good for me. It just makes it so that I have a competitive advantage over them. So I'm like, <laughs> don't sleep if you don't want to. It doesn't matter to me because I'm getting my eight hours and a fully functional brain. Um, so I'm, I'm happy with that. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time. It was 
super appreciated. And I think it, this interview will be helpful to many, many people since we are all super excited, well, for super excited about OpenAI and all the products related to OpenAI, but also just, I think the majority of the listeners just already implemented or used the models. So it's definitely a super pertinent discussion and you provided lots of very valuable insights just even for me. So thank you for your time and yeah, a huge thanks. Yeah, Louis, this was awesome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for reaching out and, and dealing with all the all the scheduling challenges of, of getting this set up. So I, I very much appreciate it. It was an awesome conversation. All pleasure is for me. Thank you. <laughs>